And so if you have a Bible, please open up to Leviticus chapter 10 in the Old Testament. A overlooked book when it comes to mainstream Christianity and a very overlooked passage uh, within this very overlooked book. We're going to learn about the sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu. And so if you would, we're going to read just the first three verses of Leviticus chapter 10. God's holy word. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Let us pray. Holy Father, we come before you and we come before this word needing your grace and your work. We need the Holy Spirit to illuminate it into our souls. We ask that you, Holy Spirit, would take the things of Jesus Christ and show them to our souls as we come before you this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in an age that accepts this thing called spirituality. It's appropriate to discuss our spiritual leanings, our experiences, to speak of how we're getting along in this world in sort of a a spiritual language. Even though the world we live in is full of corruption and infidelity and other sort of heinous sins, things that don't make sense like losing a job or a home, we we sort of experience these things, and we want to express that experience in, in some sort of spiritual language. And there's little objection to whatever stirs our souls must be a valid approach to this spiritualness. Maybe it's a book that really personalizes the Trinity like never before. Or perhaps it's a movement of people who believe in this this inner good, and if they could just strip away all these man-made restraints, they could get to that inner good. Or maybe it's a deconstruction of organized religion in favor of something much more organic and nebulous and less restricting. Yet in all this fever pitch, spiritual enterprise that our culture seems to have fallen head over for, There's one loud and blaring silence. A silence and a disregard for the holiness of God. You will not find on Oprah or even mainstream Christian radio any guru or catchphrase touting the utter separateness of God. How so far removed he is from his creation and people. How so distinct he is than any of us. You'll never hear that. You'll never hear how holy God is. Pop psychology finds holiness to be that overbearing father. Misguided churches see it as irrelevant. And everyday people live blinded lives 
to this encompassing reality that God is indeed holy. And that God's holiness, and get this this morning, God's holiness actually has an impact on how we are to live. You've been moving through this series on the holiness of God, and by doing so, I'm sure you're already aware of the implications of God's holiness on your lives. And today's sermon really brings that to a foreground as we consider this in the lives of Nadab and Abihu. I mean, there's just no escaping these three verses. There's no wiggle room. It's there. And what we find in these three verses is we see God's righteous standard. It's the standard for our obedience. We see that wrath is the punishment for disobedience. And we see that justice is the fulfillment of God's demands. We'll look at that this morning. But as I was preparing this, and I often like to, to look at previous centuries as they approach a, sim, as, as they approach a topic or a passage uh, that, that I would be preaching, I like to see what they think, what their thoughts were. And William Cooper wrote a poem. It was turned into a hymn. And the first line of it, struck me. He said this, Too many, Lord, abuse thy grace in this licentious day, and while they boast they see thy face, they turn their own away. We see what happened to Nadab and Abihu when they turned their own away. God's holiness demands obedience. That's a sobering statement. I mean, that's it. That's the gist of this sermon. God's holiness demands obedience. Let's dive in this a little further. Let's consider the story of Nadab and Abihu, and, and let's just think of what has happened in their lives over the past couple of months. They had started off in slavery, in Egypt, crying out, Lord, deliver us. They experienced God's provision and answer to prayer in the, fa- in the way that he delivers them. They see the supernatural things happen through the plagues. And then ultimately in the Passover, that their lives are spared because of the blood of a lamb. They experience then freedom. Leaving Egypt, centuries in slavery, walking out. What would that have felt like? God heard our prayers. He answered them. He brought us out. We are free. And then not only that, they experience over the next few days after leaving Egypt, more supernatural intervention, pillars. During the day, a pillar of clouds. During the night, a pillar of fire leading and guiding this mass amount of people up out of Egypt. They get cornered at a Red Sea. And what happens? It parts. They walk across it on dry ground. They're spared yet again. 
Then they gather at a mountain, and God's presence comes down. And the mountain becomes so holy and so separate and so removed from the people that no one, not even beasts, are allowed to touch it. And on top of that mountain, Moses meets with God. And he comes down, and it comes down from that mountain with the law. God's word, God's standard, God's righteousness for his people. The Nadab and Abihu experience a call to ministry, a call to the priesthood, to care for the people. Whereas just months ago, they were slaves. Uh, that's a pretty dramatic change in, in the course of their life. And here they are with a responsibility to, to shepherd their people, to, to usher their people into the worship of God. And they have in their hands the righteousness standard by which they are to follow. The righteousness of God is the standard for their obedience and for ours. So why don't we look at that in verse 1 again. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And you think, fire, it's just an unauthorized fire. It seemed like a strange fire. It doesn't seem like that big of a deal. It wasn't a great, heinous sin, was it? I mean, it was just something a little bit different. there's a very important phrase there at the end of verse 1 that I want you to get. And that is this, which he had not commanded them. That's significant. That makes their seemingly insignificant act of lighting the fire in a different pattern than God had said to become a very significant disregard for God's holiness. Why? Leviticus 8 and 9 it's the ordination and call and service and, 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 and gathering of, of the people of God and, and seeing the priests set apart. In chapter 8 and in chapter 9 of, Levit, of Leviticus, we see the consecration of Aaron and his sons. And then the initial ordination service and these commands that God was giving. This is how you are to be priests for my people. This is how I want you to do it. And 13 times in those two chapters, we find this verse. Just as the Lord had commanded them. Just as the Lord had commanded them. And so what is so striking in verse 1 of chapter 10, after this great moment and this great worship service and this great gathering of people and this exciting moment where, where these men are set apart to care for the people, we find such deflating words, which he had not commanded them. They went their own way. As Cooper witnessed in his day and as we witness in our own, they went their own way, and so often we go our own way. And we need to be aware that going our own way comes with a cost. Theologian Herman Bovink said this, God is called righteous because he rewards every man for his work. 
God can do that because he is the righteous standard. He holds every person up to his standard. Psalm 18, verse 20. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to my cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. Psalm 119, verse 142. Your righteousness is righteous forever. So God's righteous standard for our lives knows no end, is not incomplete, is not insufficient. And as such, it is worthy of our obedience day in and day out. We have no wiggle room. We don't have the liberty to do what Nadab and Abihu did and go our own way because the consequences are severe. Nadab and Abihu disobeyed what the Lord had commanded them. And this was a blatant disregard for God's righteous standard. Again, to reiterate this, the standard is not set from our perspective or through our definitions. The standard is set by God. He is perfect in all his attributes. He is holy in all his attributes. And so when God sets a standard for man, it is a perfect and holy standard. And so now think back on this fire, this seemingly insignificant act of Nadab and Abihu. What they were doing was rebelling against a perfect and holy command. Something that goes from insignificant to very significant. And so when we rebel, no matter how great or small, the offense is great because it is against a holy and perfect and righteous God. The one offended determines the severity of the offense. Now, if we were in a room and we were painting the floor, our corner is getting smaller. Well, our corner shrinks dramatically here. Because the wrath of God is the punishment for disobedience. Look at verse 2. No confusion. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. I mean, this is reiterating this in a very dramatic fashion. I mean, it's enough to be able to say fire came out and consumed them. We, we get the picture. You don't necessarily survive that. But they says fire consumed them and they died before the Lord. Dead. Because of disobedience. A.W. Pink said the wrath of God is his eternal detestation of all unrighteousness. And I love this. It is the holiness of God stirred into activity against sin. The holiness of God stirred into activity against sin. And we look at this, and there might be, and if we're honest with ourselves, there might be a part of us in here that think that's just not fair. It's not fair for them to be consumed by fire because they did one little thing wrong. We're not perfect. We're not, or I mean, we're just humans. And while that temptation to say that 
to think that is there. We need to realize something very important about God's wrath. It is a divine perfection. You see, if there was no wrath in God, then God would have a blemish. God would be incomplete. God would not be as holy as we see here in Scripture. If wrath was absent from God, God is no longer God. How can God, who is holy and perfect and just, allow for even the slightest of sin in his presence? He can't. Not even the slightest. Psalm 21, verses 8 and 9. Your hand will find out all of your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath. And fire will consume them. David wrote that psalm. Do you think Nadab and Abihu were on his mind when he crafted those words. Take, for example, a verse that you probably covered last year. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. If God's wrath doesn't exist, then we are not following God. There would be no God. God's wrath has to exist because sin exists and because God is holy. Fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Sometimes we're looking at our lives and we think, all right, I don't necessarily live a perfect life. I don't follow all of God's standards. I'm not obedient all of the time. I'm not capable of doing that. This is rather depressing, Sean. So you're saying that I'm going to be consumed by the wrath of God. Oh, wait, there's more. God would would be perfectly just. Absolutely perfectly just to do just that. Look at verse 3. Then Moses said to Aaron, imagine you're Aaron, by the way. Your sons just got commissioned into priestly duty. They're, they're, they're about to, to interact and, and bring the people of God before God and worship. And all of a sudden they are consumed by fire. Have some questions, some objections, some hurt? Would you be devastated? All of the above? Moses interjects. This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. You know what Moses does? Before Aaron can, can 
get angry or mad or frustrated or disillusioned. He reminds him of God. He says to Aaron, God is holy. Don't forget that. God is going to be set apart. God will be glorified. God sets the standard, Aaron. And then we see Aaron's response. Aaron held his peace. In fact, the words there, it just means that Aaron remained silent, still, like just floored to the ground, still, unmovable, terrified by God's holiness, recognizing that what just transpired was justice. That God swiftly, completely dealt with sin, with disobedience, because His holiness demands obedience. And the justice of God is the fulfillment of those demands. You can look at it like this. God sets a righteous standard for our obedience. And we have two actions to make there that have two consequences. Action A would be to obey God's righteous standard, and the consequence of that would be peace with God. And so if God gives us a righteous standard, and we obey that righteous standard, and our peaceful relationship with God would all be a just act. It's all based on something that God has set. We respond to that foundational truth with obedience, and God is perfectly just to have peace with us. Consequently, though, if God does set that righteous standard and God does demand these things of us and we look at those demands and we consider those demands or we ignore those demands altogether and go our own way and we disobey them, then God is going to bring about a reaction to that. And so instead of peace with God, we experience the wrath of God. And just like righteousness responded with obedience equals peace, and how that is a just act, righteousness followed up by disobedience that receives wrath is also a just act. Because whatever God does is righteous, and whatever God does is just. Consider Exodus 34, 6 and 7. This is the second time that Moses goes up onto the mountain to get a second set of tablets of the law of God. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty? visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. We see the promise of both God's gracious act and God's wrath. Wrath 
is righteous and just because it is of God. And this gives us this challenge. We're painted into this corner, realizing that God demands something of us. Whether we want to believe that or not is beside the point. The demand is there. The righteous standard is there. And we either respond with obedience or disobedience. And this is the corner that we're painted in. And if you're honest, you realize this is a corner we cannot get out of. Not on our own. We, we can't get through this, this painted floor. The holiness of God demands an obedience we cannot meet. That's what we see here in this passage. And this is what we see throughout the Bible and the lives of people throughout the history of the church and in our own lives, that God's holiness demands an obedience, a standard that we cannot reach, we cannot keep, we cannot meet it. So in a sense, we're left to God's wrath, but wait. God is slow to anger. God is compassionate. God is merciful. God is gracious. And God has provided a way. There are two types of people. The ones whom someone else took on God's wrath for. The ones who, who believe in the someone else who took on their, their, their payment. And the ones who will have to pay and receive the wrath of God. When Jesus Christ came to this earth and he lived the life that he lived and he died the death that he died... In that whole process, what he was doing was living out all of God's demands and, and, and standards and righteous setting for us perfectly. Perfectly living out God's righteous requirements. Dying a death for people who deserved it. And in so doing, receiving the wrath of God. And because of his righteous and perfect life, his offering on our behalf was more than enough. His substitution in our place for our sins was more than enough to pay for God's wrath. Currently, there's a movement within people who go to church (laughs) that believe that when they look at the cross, all they see is cosmic child abuse. That this is some horrific event. That this is some sort of evil actually occurring. That they look at the cross and consider it evil. I get angry, but then quickly my heart breaks and grieves for them. The cross is not evil. The cross is our only way out of the corner that we're painted in. The cross is the only way that we can be saved. We can never be good enough to keep peace with God, let alone get it. We need the cross. 
It's absolutely necessary. And for many of us in here, we've come to that reality where we realize that our need is for what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. And you've responded to that truth with faith. And to those of us in here who have done that, when we consider God's holy standard, his righteousness, when we consider God's wrath and his justice, and when we see that in light of the gospel, when we see that in light of the cross, our response should be one of ongoing thanks and praise and adoration and worship that each day, each moment that we live in this life, should be followed up with a thankful heart before God, that we would be saved from God's wrath, a wrath that is divine, a wrath that is perfect, a wrath that would never end because God is eternal, His righteousness is eternal, His justice is eternal. And we have been spared by that because of Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit applying that to our lives and giving us saving faith. And we no longer have to live in fear and in doubt and in worry and anxiety, but we can live in faith with hope and with trust that God who saved us from his wrath will indeed save us in this day, who will enable us to live lives of honor and of holiness and that we would be set apart in this world, that we would be messengers of this grace. Oh, that we would have a growing obedience in our lives because of Jesus Christ, because of the gospel. And that's the amazing thing about the gospel. The law, God's standard, before the gospel invades our lives, is this unmovable, unremovable weight that is on us pressing us down and crushing us. But when the gospel comes and that truth bursts into our light and chases out the sin in our soul and covers us, we don't see the law. We don't see God's standard. We don't see his word that way anymore. No, we join with the psalmist and we delight in it. God's law becomes sweeter than honey. Instead of looking to avoid it, we run to it. We eat on it. We fill our lives with it because it is so good and it is so sweet. And then we can live our lives with hope, knowing that God will one day deal with his enemies, that this prince of this world who is waging a war against the church and against the people who brings temptations into your lives will receive the wrath of God. Those who hate God, who ignore the gospel call, who blatantly disregard God's holiness will one day receive God's wrath. And the lives that you live in this fallen and sinful world, surrounded by fallen and sinful people, will one day end. And the eternal peace with God that you get to experience will carry on to no end. Take courage 
brothers and sisters. Now, there might be some in here, however, who, <clears throat> who don't have faith in Jesus Christ. Who very much are in a predicament like Nadab and Abihu. You've lived moment by moment, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year with a blatant disregard for, for God, intentional or not. You've disregarded God's holiness and you have gone your own way. Well, there was a very famous sermon that was given. Many of you probably had to read this in high school or maybe even college, and you probably had a teacher or a professor rip it to shreds and point out how horrible and horrific and uneducated these people were back in these days. But Jonathan Edwards wrote a sermon called The Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And if you were to sit down and read that sermon, you would find that to be not this horrific sermon, but one of the most gracious things preached in our country. This is what Jonathan Edwards says about the predicament that some of us in here may have, living life that is a blatant disregard for God and his holiness and his standard. He says this, You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it, ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. And you have no interest in any mediator, Nothing to lay a hold of to save yourself. Nothing to keep off the flames of wrath. Nothing of your own. Nothing that you have ever done. Nothing that you will ever do to induce God to spare you one moment. He goes on and makes a clear call. Repent and believe. It's not complicated. I make that call to you this morning. If you're living your life in a blatant disregard for the demands of God, repent and believe in the way that God has given his people to be saved, to be rescued from his wrath. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. the end of Hebrews chapter 12. A book that can interpret the Old Testament like no other. Gives us some stirring words describing what we get to experience as ones redeemed and saved from the wrath of God. It is more fitting to end with God's word on a subject of this immensity of God's holiness, of his wrath and of his justice, by turning to these words. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. 
But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire.